this week on the Back Table Podcast. I do think some of our kids with pretty severe clefts and skull base malformations, they're just always going to need a tube or some type of ventilation drainage place. But if they've got a subtotal perforation and a near maximal conductive hearing loss, so you got to do something. Sometimes I'll graft those drums and I'll probably use tragus for that. But then also put in, I did my ear fellowship with Herb Silverstein and he put in these subannular tubes that actually go underneath. And if you've got the drum already lifted up to do your tympanoplasty, it's actually a pretty easy thing to slide one under there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the BioDesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now, back to the show. My name is Gopi Shah, and I'm a pediatric ENT. We have an awesome topic today on tympanic membrane perforations in children, and I have two returning guests. Let me introduce them. I have first Dr. Walter Coots. He's a neurotologist and professor at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. You all may know him. He's been a guest and host on previous Backtable ENT episodes on topics including otologic manifestations of migraine, hearing loss, and cognitive decline, eustachian tube disorders, and congenital hearing loss. We also, returning today, we have Dr. Daniel Chu. He's a neurotologist whose practice is now almost entirely pediatric-focused, and he's the chief of pediatric ENT at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He was also recently a guest on Backtable ENT Episode 78, Leadership in Pediatric Otolaryngology with Dr. Dana Thompson and Dr. Shoham Roy. And it is my pleasure to have you both back on the show today to talk about tympanic membrane perforations in children. So welcome back, guys. Thanks, Gopi. Thanks, Gopi. So before we get into it, y'all want to just first tell us a little bit about yourselves and your practice for any of our listeners who might be new to Backtable or who may not know you guys. Yeah, um, my name is Walter Coots, and I've had the pleasure of being on Backtable before. I've always enjoyed the episodes and especially listening to the other episodes. I'm a otologist, neurotologist at UT Southwestern. I finished my fellowship in 2007 at the House Ear Clinic and joined UT Southwestern. I've been there ever since. I would say about 70% of my practice is adult, 30% is children. So I usually operate oh, about three to four days a month, and then I have two clinics, and I see a lot of pediatric patients through my UT Southwestern clinic as well. And what about you, Dan? Uh, so it's striking that I've been in Cincinnati now for 24 years, and I'll confess that during my residency in Syracuse, the hardest and most onerous part of our rotations were the peds rotations. And so I came out of residency thinking, I'm going to have a height line on my office door. And if you don't come up to that line, you can't come in my <laughs> ride. So to be practicing in Cincinnati Children's is really strange for me. My background is, like Walter's, also in otology, neurotology, training in Florida, as well as in Washington, D.C. at NIH before I came out here. But it's a great, very gratifying practice to work on kids. I do probably about a third of my work is implant-related stuff, hearing loss. Another third is congenital ears. And then another third is revision chronic ear stuff like we're talking about today. Obviously, I love children as well. My practice is all pediatric ENT, but I do not have the height marker at the door because I need to make sure that I pass that marker. For those of you who do not know me, I, I clear five foot and that's about it. So, all right. So let's get into it. So the, the reason I wanted to have this podcast topic on dependent memory perforations in children is because one, I think that sometimes diagnosing them can be difficult to make that decision making about how to manage when to watch, when to consider surgery, and then the surgery itself and post-op can be difficult. So let's just first talk about how some of these kids present to you. What, how old are they usually? What are the, some of the symptoms? And kind of go from there. They seem to come in different phases. I'll get my three, four, five-year-old kids who've had one or multiple sets of tubes in their earlier lives. And then as the tubes fell out, they're left with a residual perforation. 
mixed in there, but overlapping in that Venn diagram, then you got these kids who just develop these chronic separative years that just drain and they always have a perforation and seem to manage those with and without tubes. And you end up at this place where they've got holes in their eardrums. Uh, and then a smaller proportion are those kids who come back later, either from a traumatic or maybe they had just had a fluke, acute otitis episode that perforated, and they come in with these clean, dry, very sclerotic-looking perforations. Each of those you manage, obviously, just a little bit differently. Yeah, it's pretty similar in my practice. Sometimes, you know, a child may not have any really symptoms, and they get their first hearing screening in school. They they just have a little hearing loss. You come to see them, they have a dry perforation, which I think a lot of times is probably from a tympanoscopy tube that extruded and they have a persistent perforation. You know, I usually will ask any history of drainage, how's their speech, how are they doing in school? What are the things on the history? Are y'all asking or do you always have on your checklist of questions? I like to ask about have they had a history of tympanoscopy tubes. I think it's very important. You know, a lot of these kids, if they don't have a cholesterol, they don't really have drainage, they have a mild hearing loss, we're going to follow them for a while. And so if they're really struggling in school, perhaps that may be more incentive to repair the perforation or at least consider a hearing aid. I think asking about cleft palate, does a child have other craniofacial abnormalities, allergy problems, these sort of things are really important. Also, I think asking about the contralateral ear is important. You know, are they continuing to get infections in their contralateral ear? I, I'd be less likely to offer a tympanoplasty in that situation. And then the physical exam, sometimes I find it can be kind of difficult. Sometimes there can be a history of the perf and documented it on my last visit. And sometimes, you know, maybe it's the, the four-year-old or the six-year-old that just doesn't want me in their ear that day. Are you always using just standard otoscopy? Do you use a microscope every time? How do you get the exam and how do you follow it? Do you ever put a scope in, flex or rigid? You know, I love using an endoscope in the ear, but in the clinic, it's a little bit onerous for us, and I'm not sure what your guys' experiences are, but it's a little bit of work to hook it up, and it's so much easier to just walk them down to our room where we have the microscope. It's pretty pretty rare that we've got to get into a formal wrestling match with a nurse or a MA, mom and dad, and as well as myself to get a good look. If the parents are comfortable, I'll also try and work into it. Maybe it won't be a 100% exam on this visit today, but you'll come back in a month or so, and we'll take another look and I'll gradually ease the kids into it. The standard otoscopes, I think we can probably get by with that, you know, a majority of the time, and the kids will let you get a decent look and you'll get a good enough idea as to the scope of the perforation. But boy, just like we've seen in the operating room, the endoscopes give you so much better view. It's pretty sensitive though, to put that in a squirmy four-year-old kid, that would be tough. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I enjoy using endoscopes in the operating room and use them frequently like Dan. But in the clinic, it's challenging. You know, if you bump that X-ray canal with an endoscope, it really hurts. Even with adults, you know, you have to be much more gentle and thoughtful than if you're using, you know, a um, speculum or a microscope. And I think like you said, if you kind of talk to the child and you try to gently look in the ear, you don't necessarily have to remove all the room in the first time. If you can get an idea of what's going on, just like Dan said, I think you just sort of get another child, know that, hey, I'm not going to hurt you. And then you can even come back and take a look later. Yeah. If I have a chronic perf that I'll watch, I might, and the, the child is older, maybe like six to, depending on the six-year-old, maybe eight, it, it just it kind of depends. Once a year, I might try to put a camera in just so that the family can see it. We can all kind of see it. And then when I see them back in three to six months, depending on their symptoms, I'll use just a regular otoscopy. Or if I still can't get a great look with otoscopy, if it's super anterior, I just need to get a better view, uh, then I'll use the microscope. And then I agree, putting a scope in the ear. So I know one, a couple of times I'm like, oh, let me try the flexible. It's softer and I can still get a good look. But it's so long and big that even trying to, you know, oh, my God, you're going to stick this big old thing in my ear. And they sometimes aren't having it either. And I agree sometimes, you know, with an endoscope, it, it is very nice. But the heat on the light has got to be turned down because even that, just having the heat can be painful or scary and just make them kind of jerk. And so a ding there is not is not necessarily what we want. But I think the families, if they can see it, like it too. And if we can see it better, it's kind of nice. I think that's been great. When we renovated our clinics several years ago, we put video monitors on each side of the wall in the microscope room so that whatever your ear you're looking at, the kid can also see, which I found has been very, very helpful. They'll let me do a ton more if they can see what I'm doing to them. And then when it comes to discussing surgery, it's been so much easier to talk off the screen with the family. Well, you had mentioned some of the risk factors, underlying usation tube dysfunction from craniofacial, like cleft palate, 
you know, we do have a special group of whether it's a syndromic, non-syndromic, cleft palate, or children with uh, trisomy 21, have eustachian tube dysfunction that can end up with residual perfs or get a perf that doesn't heal and so forth. How do you think about those kids? How does that underlying risk factor kind of play a role into your decision making of how to manage? Yeah, I think I'm more likely to follow those perforations, you know, especially if they're not causing really any issues. They're a small perforation, they're dry, there's no cholecystoma, hearing's so good. You know, it's, it's basically acting like a tamponoscopy tube, which a lot of these kids are going to need anyway. Now, saying that, my it's overall big three criteria to fix a perforation would be if there is evidence of a cholecystoma, if they have chronic otorrhea that is just, you know, they're on multiple sets of ototopical drops, and maybe sometimes they get a lot of oral antibiotics from their pediatrician. And then if they have really significant hearing loss, I, I you know, I was, those are the kids I will typically address, but kid with cleft palate, other syndromic issues, you know, higher risk of eustachian dysfunction, oftentimes I'll try to follow them as long as I can. And a lot of times, even if some hearing loss, they can wear a hearing aid pretty successfully. I'm on the same page. There's different points in my career where I felt like, oh, I can close that one. That'll be all right. And you get burned a few times. They said, all right, I need to dial that back a little bit. It's rare that I've been disappointed that I waited longer. Uh, there's extremely rare instances where a very benign looking perf ends up developing some squam growing into the middle ear and I said, oh, I should have gone back in before that developed. But that's a pretty rare exception, I think. I'm more sensitized. I don't know if it's from living in the Ohio River Valley, but the environmental allergy stuff, rhinosinusitis with associated eustachian tube dysfunction, is a real, real bugaboo for me. There's kids where we patched them up successfully but then they come back with recurrent fluid and you end up poking a hole back through with a tube and a drum that you just repaired. And you feel like, oh, why did I do that? So we're more cautious about those for sure these days. Do you try to get them evaluated for allergy, put on medication? Like how do you sort of manage that part of it or consult? If I'm suspicious about that, certainly starting on history and physical, we'll try and probe it and see if there's a family history of environmental allergies, which I think is a risk factor. Take a quick look in their nose, see if their turbs are really swollen, chronically congested. I'll usually start putting them on an antihistamine and some Flonase type stuff. But if they still have symptoms after that, then that's when I'll usually refer them on for formal allergy testing. The frustrating one is where it comes back all negative. And you and the family are saying, I know my kid has allergies. I, I wish it shown positive and we figure out what to treat more targeted fashion. Those are definitely harder. Those are usually the slightly older kids, otherwise healthy. And it's hard to know sort of, like you said, which way do you go with that eustachian tube, underlying eustachian tube dysfunction? Well, you'd mentioned the contralateral ear. What about an otherwise child with no other medical comorbidities, but they have bilateral perfs? How do you determine the contralateral ear? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, look at the literature and some people have kind of cut off five years old, seven years old, eight years old. You know, again, if I've been in this situation and some, you know, in Texas, it's really hot in the summer, kids want to swim, they get the ear wet and it's miserable for them. And so I probably do maybe a few tympanoplasties at a little younger age than, you know, maybe that I'd prefer and usually get away with it. You know, I don't really have a strict age cutoff. I think every kid's different. Um, you know, some people may have a guideline of seven or eight years old if it's just a dry perforation not causing trouble. But if they don't have the risk factors and out of a careful conversation with the parents, um, usually I try to maybe get them a little older, you know, out of that eustachian dysfunction stage. You know, I don't know if that's six, seven, eight years old, something like that. And oftentimes, I think the parents appreciate that you're not just wanting to operate right away. You're building a relationship. Once you do the surgery, hopefully it's successful. But it's not successful. You've had this conversation a few times, and I think you've been thoughtful about your decision-making. So again, I don't really have a strict age cutoff, but um, even a five or six-year-old, if the even with bilateral dry perforations, the parents understand that there's a chance the child made another tube, they may, may not heal properly, you know, very low risk of retraction of cholesteatoma, then, you know, I think proceeding carefully is, is reasonable. Yeah, I would say the, the interesting part about the relationship with our patients and our families, a lot of times when I've been waiting on these kids for a while, it's the, actually the parents who say, hey, is it about time? Can we talk about fixing this thing yet? And I'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. We're going to do that now about this age. It's much more comfortable. I think that shared decision-making at that point inspires a lot more confidence for them. Absolutely. And, and like you said, if the hearing's good, the speech is good, we're not getting drainish and it's dry, what's our goal here? And so kind of having to split that up functionally, how are they doing and what's our audio show and are we having problems from it? 
a tympanoplasty surgery, the post-op care is a, sometimes like if you have dissection or if they have drainage, like it's not an easy recovery or that sort of dry ear. If you're going to do drops, you know, if you have to take a look and section anything out, there's more to it than sometimes just, okay, we're going to go ahead and start tympanoplasty because the why I think is important. Every once in a while, I've seen kids maybe between the ages of five to seven, and we've been watching a dry perf and the hearing test is still good, but the size looks bigger. Do you watch that? What do you do if you notice, is this getting bigger? That's not that common of a problem, but I've seen that. You know, I think I would do the same criteria. If their hearing is still reasonable, um, if they're five or six and the parents want to wait another year or two, that's fine. You know, you do worry about things like secondary acquired cholesteatoma. They can sometimes be difficult on the exam. And so, you know, things like persistent or recurrent otorrhea, you know, that may be higher incidence of uh, secondary acquired cholesterol or just chronic superdivitatis media. This is not going to get better without surgery. But I, I think I'd follow the same sort of decision-making. I'm not, I wouldn't be as concerned about a larger perforation, although typically that's going to cause more hearing loss. And you'd probably be more tempted to repair it anyway. But I think I'd kind of follow along as I would regardless. Yeah. Same for me, Gopi. I don't know. Do you, does it change your thinking or your approach? Well, if the hearing is good, I, I don't feel like a rush, but I just worry. I'm like, is it just going to make the repair harder or the chances of closure harder if that hole is bigger? If we're starting with 40% and now it's like 70, you know, and every once in a while the audio looks pretty good. The kid's doing well in kindergarten and language is good and it's always hard to know. And so maybe I'll see them as opposed to usually for my stable kids, I'd see them about every six months to get an audio and an ear check. But maybe I'd see them a little bit sooner at three to six months and really talk to the family about see how they're doing in school. If they're getting in trouble more, if the, if the teacher's calling you, it could be that we have a change in the hearing or, you know, when they're swimming, we may want to be a little bit more particular about plugs and things like that. Yeah, I think on the size of perforation, I still like doing lateral graft panoplasty and I feel kids heal really well from this. And so even a subtotal perforation, in some ways that operation is very standardized for me. Gopi, we work together. It's the same kind of operation every time. It looks the same at the end. I actually enjoy that operation. So the, I guess in my hands, the size of perforation may not matter as much. Saying that, you know, if it's what I'm going to do, a medial graft and use an endoscope and it's more of that anterior superior, those are more challenging. I think heal less commonly, but it's something to consider for sure. I think the size, that, that probably hits on it well, is the location of the perforation and what you got to repair is probably the more significant driver of should you fix that before it gets worse up in that anterior superior corner or not. But you're such a house guy. You know, who, who does lateral grafts these days? I, I, they work. <laughs> in terms of the location, the uh, anterior perfs or like the anterior superior do you follow those, you know, more carefully? What's your decision making on those for a child that's between that three to five years old, the two fell out and they ended up with like a 25% anterior superior perf? I don't think it changes too much. I'm still following. Does it get infected a lot? Does it drain? And is there hearing loss? And those are the things that the parents seem to bring the kids in and get worried about. So even if it's a pretty decent sized anterior superior perforation in a three-year-old kid, We'd probably say, you know what, let's watch it for a little while longer. We'll stack the deck. And when we actually do repair this, we'll be at a point where it's probably going to be one and done. Yeah, I agree with that. I think just talking about a little technique, it's nice having partners from different training. Um, Jake Hunter was with our group for about six years, and he um, did a lot of over-under type technique where he'll declub the malleus completely. And I think it gives you really good access to those superior anterior perforations. So that's something that I've been cautious about in the past because I always thought the drum may lateralize off the manubrium. But in reality, if you don't overpack the middle ear space, it's a very good technique. And I'll use an endoscopic approach typically. So, you know, I, I, I'm not just the house guy. I am also willing to learn different <laughs> techniques that seem to work very well. But, you know, I think over time you, you kind of learn you know, what, what works for you. And, and I think it's okay to change and try some different techniques. Maybe that's a good segue, Gopi, for technique pieces to this because... For those, I always felt it was so, maybe not invasive is not the right word, but to deglove the malleus and do all that work to get up to that front corner, I'm doing a lot more cartilage grafting for those. And, you know, if it's small enough, even trying something like a butterfly graft for that, to me, that felt almost wrong because it was too easy and I didn't struggle enough to get a good result. But I'm struck by how often you do get a great result and the hearing is good, and it's a really quick healing, quick recovery. 
And as opposed to degloving the malleus and going that way, a lot of times I'll skew my tympanomiatal flap a little bit more inferiorly and anteriorly and lift the drum up from bottom up. And that lets you get around the malleus and get the graft up where it needs to be. Packing and supporting the graft up in that top front corner is still really hard though. I think that's one of the the failure prone areas for us still. Yeah, I agree. That's very similar. I would typically do a medial graft and leave the skin on the malleus and trying to pack that super anterior is very difficult. And one, one instrument that's been helpful with that is the Thomason dissector. You can sort of, it's that right angled with the little spatula tip. Dan, you know about this. We use it a lot in the endoscopic world, and but it works great for microscopic world as well. But you can sort of turn and place your gel foam kind of around that malleus and it helps, but it doesn't seem like an ever quite get a packing up that super anterior space. It's challenging. I do agree. If you can do something like a fat graft or I do do a lot of butterfly grafts, but something just simple, you've tried something that's going to probably have a really high likelihood of working. You're not going to really disturb the rest of the anatomy of the tympanic membrane. I think that's definitely worthwhile and a really good point. Is there a certain um, size criteria for a butterfly cartilage graft, a size that's too big that you were like, no, I think I'm going to have to just do a standard tympanoplasty And for our listeners who may not know, this is the cartilage graph where you're kind of making it into like a grommet, correct? And you're kind of taking some of the epithelium off of the tympanic membrane and making sure so that skin isn't trapped in it and then kind of popping it in like a tube. There's a lot of variables. The the location of it definitely makes a difference. Uh, In some ways, having a little moringosclerosis around the perforation in those actually can be a little bit helpful because it gives your graph something to really butt up against and holds it steady. In very rough terms, I'd say if it's more than three millimeters in size, I'm probably going to do something more formal, lift up the drum and try and graft it. What about uh, fat? Do either of you guys do the little fat plug? I do that. I probably should do that more often. I figure if you're going to sleep, um, I'm an otologist. I think a lot of otologists are like, well, I'm going to do a formal tympanoplasty. I'm going to have that nice 80 to 90% success rate. Fat graphs, Probably less than that. I don't know if it's that much less, but I do think there's been times where, you know, I've looked at a perforation, I'm like, probably could have just done a fat graph that I could try. And, and I would probably say that sort of same, if it's greater than three millimeters, I'd consider, you know, formal tympanoplasty. Dan, I don't know, how do you do fat graphs some here and there? Or? Mm, that's pretty rare. I think what's supplanted it more for me lately is I've been using a good bit of the porcine submucosal intestinal grafts. I think. It's commercially available, pretty pretty benign, easy to work with stuff. And if there was something where I was going to do either a fat graft or even, I don't know, some people do a gel foam plug and a perforation after roughing it up, uh, with some of these synthetic grafts, you can just clean up the edges of the perforation, pack some gel foam underneath it to support the graft, and then just work right through the hole. It looks a whole lot prettier, and it, it feels like it's a little bit more intentional than just stuffing some soft tissue into the hole. And that's my baggage. I, I will tell you, it's if I don't struggle enough, then I'm probably not going to get a good enough result. Yeah, the, no, that I guess you can call it kind of like a stuffer where you take your bash or whatever, you kind of stuff it through the perforation. And that's something else I've thought of. I probably should do that more often. Yeah, I guess one, one warning for the audience on that, you know, if the patient has significant conductive loss, you know, one of the disadvantages of, that's actually would be considered a moringoplasty because you're not entering the middle of your space. You know, if they do have a significant conductive hearing loss, you're worried about the ossicles or cholesteatoma, that'd be maybe one argument to do a tympanoplasty. But most of the time, they don't really have a lot of conductive loss. And I think doing something that's pretty straightforward and simple would work well. I've had uh, some healing issues with the porcine submucosa grafts. Have you had any trouble with larger perforations, you know, maybe 50, 70% perforations? Or have they seem to be healing okay for you? No, I don't, I don't like using that on the larger perforations like that. I don't know if it gets a vascular supply fast enough and then it's a race. More distal portions are going to start dissolving away and left with a recurrent perforation again. But I have been happy if you've got a subtotal perforation. Let's say you decide to use some tragus and some perichondrium and there's still a little gap there. Using the, the submucosal stuff to kind of fill in whatever defects you have there, it seems to epithelialize pretty quickly from that. Yeah, Dan, you mentioned use of cartilage. I've actually, interestingly, probably used less cartilage over time, even in kids. And it seems like my results have been, they seem good. I haven't looked at them 
you know, systematically. You really, you really don't know your results. You'll be humbled if you look at them systematically. You're just like, oh, hell's every time. They're like, oh, well, no, they only held us 70% of the time. But, <laughs> you know, I think one of the challenges, maybe I, I, one of the points you brought up is when you, when you use cartilage, you know, cartilage is pretty rigid and the drum's actually very kind of a dynamic, almost like a cone shaped. And, you know, and, and so I think sometimes I put cartilage in there and I think just that, you know, the cartilage doesn't really sit under the drum and you have that little gap. But I've seen some of these heal up. We have this little crescent shape residual perforation. And it sounded like you may take some of the porcine submucosa or a little pericardium and kind of fill in that little gap. Is that right? Is that kind of what you were describing? Yeah, exactly. That's a really helpful tip. I'm curious. So I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm probably <laughs> using more cartilage than I did 10 years ago. I'm really happy with the healing outcomes. It has made a little bit of a difference in a positive way. And so far, I think I'm still seeing good hearing results from it. And especially on those anterior superior perforations that we talked about, I think that area really helps me. What's made you shift the other way, Walt? You know, I think it's just the, I think the fascia or the perichondrium is just pretty no nonsense. It's simple. You place in there, it's going to really form underneath the drum. You put some packing and I think some of the cartilage, I think it's a little hard to size. You know, if you're going to do like a shield piece of cartilage, you're going to cut out that strip of the malleus. Sometimes it's difficult to make sure that's not contacting the malleus or the right angle. But like you said, in reality, you know, all the literature and our experience shows that cartilage doesn't seem to really negatively affect the hearing results, which is really surprising. But there's been literature upon literature that really shows there's really not much of a difference. I think the fashion of pericondrium is just simple to, to work with. And now a kid with cleft palate, recurrent perforations, you know, those sort of things. Yeah, I'm going to use cartilage. Just give, buy yourself more time and, and have a better chance of healing results. But these kids, that maybe it's just a tube that came out and didn't heal well. They had a traumatic perforation. You say she'd go on the other side. I just usually use fashion pericardium. That's, I, I think the more, more people lean to using more cartilage over time, but I've just kind of used a little less recently and it's been, seems to be working okay. What kind of tricks do you have to shaping the cartilage graft? Because cartilage, I agree, is difficult to kind of maneuver to get exactly where you want, sizing it and estimating it. I don't think I appreciated it until actually working with you, Walter and Brandon, when I was a fellow and being like, hey, this is the important stuff is actually, hate to say it on the back table, where the, um, you know, where you're actually harvesting. That's where the attending is harvesting the graft. Like, how do I know how, what size and what angle and what shape? So any tricks on that? Uh, well, I was going to let Dan answer because he's the, the cartilage guru here. But um, no, I've used a lot of cartilage. You go be, you know, I think when we were working together, I probably use cartilage in most cases. What I like to do, I've done it a lot of different ways. Um, I think uh, John Dornhofer, if you want to read some literature, um, I think he has really good techniques and well explained if the listeners want to look at some more literature regarding cartilage graft and panoplasty. But I've done shield grafts. But what I like to do now is I'll place, usually perichondrium or fascia if it's a large perforation, I'll actually place the cartilage separately. So I don't really do these composite grafts as much anymore. So I'll fix the perforation or have the perforation covered with a soft tissue. And then I'll put cartilage underneath that. And of course, you want to support that cartilage with gel foam. If I'm going to use cartilage, that's typically how I'm using it. I think we've been, and this, this is in a period where probably 85, maybe even 90% of my eardrum perforations were fixing endoscopically. And so I'm hesitant to make a separate incision behind the ear to harvest fascia. And so I'm using a lot more. That may be one of the drivers, Walt, why I'm doing more cartilage tell you the truth. And our trainees definitely do struggle with making the graph the right size and shape. When it comes to harvesting, we always take as big a tragal graft as you can. And I tell people it is physically impossible for you to harvest too big a graft. Uh, we leave the tip of the tragus, so hopefully it doesn't deform too much. And then more recently, I've had the trainees take the foil pack from one of our sutures and just kind of create a template start working with it, and it gives them a much more concrete uh, shape and size that they're going to trim the graft to. And especially with an endoscope, I started out asking him, take a round knife and measure it out when you're looking in there. Tell me how many round knife diameters are we going anterior to posterior, superior to inferior. But one of the pitfalls there is that with the endoscope, they get a bit of this parallax, and it can make the round knife look bigger or smaller in relation to the perforation. And then when we actually cut it and put it in, you're like, holy cow, how did we end up so off on this thing? So that's where the foil pack has come in more. I've been much happier with that. It's rare that we put a cartilage graft in there and it's like way out of sync with what the hole is like. Yeah, those are all good tips. And and I I noticed what's something just kind of uh, fun about otology is that, you know, I think your techniques change a little bit over time, probably your whole career. 
it's very creative in a lot of ways. There's different ways of doing it. And, you know, I'll, I'll go see somebody give a talk and, you know, even this conversation, I'll, you know, let me try that. And, you know, try that a few times. You know, I agree with all those. And it's, as you become really more experienced, you can sort of just eyeball it and cut it pretty accurately every time. But that takes many, many cases to do that. So I really like the idea of templates. If you use like a, an eight millimeter speculum, that's a pretty good idea of, you know, how large the drum's going to be. So you could even just stamp that with um, a marking pen or something just as a start. And then, you know, that's another way to sort of size things. My first few years out, I would separate it because I liked that technique. I always found the composite, maneuvering it, managing, measuring it, fitting it how I wanted a lot more difficult. So I liked separating it. And I like, I think the way you would kind of remove some of the excess cartilage off of when you were doing a composite, there was a few times when you did off of the fascia, you use that, the small round knife just so that you wouldn't pop through the fascia just gently. Uh, I liked that, those two things that you used to do too. Tell me about, we had mentioned some laryngosclerosis. Um, when you're doing formal tympanoplasty, when is it helpful and when do you decide to take that all out? What, how do you know what you're going to leave in and what you're going to take out? Mm, I got a pretty pragmatic but not consistent approach to it. I really dislike grafting, say doing an underlay graft to a bunch of moringosclerosis. I just can't see that healing really well. So I'll start peeling away at least till we have a couple millimeters, if not a few millimeters of healthy drum that we can contact with fascia or perichondrium. And sometimes as you're doing that, the whole thing just peels out like a plaque, right? And you look really slick and say, oh, this, this is great. Other times it's so adherent that you just start tearing away more drum. So very pragmatic when it comes to that. I hate to take something that would have had a good, healthy margin of native drum and then booger it all up by trying to peel away the plaque. But at least a couple millimeters, if not a few millimeters of drum epithelium that we can graft to makes me feel a lot more comfortable. Yeah, I think my approach is very similar. And I think meringosclerosis, there's different sort of severity. You know, that really thin, a little discolorations, a little whitish, that's probably fine. You know, if it's thick where you take a a 5910 beaver blade or a, a rose and you can't at all poke through the thing, you're afraid you're going to injure the, the sickler chain or something, that's probably not going to heal well. And, you know, even for a um, small medium perforation, one thing I, I do like about a lateral graft technique, and it could be with, if you do underlays, I, I feel comfortable removing the drum. If it is really thick, diseased drum with this really aggressive wrinkle sclerosis, I'll just remove all that and then put a fresh piece of fashion there and it's typically going to heal pretty well. But it's always a question. People ask me that. I, I just, I think it really depends. You know, you're you want to have a very systematic way of doing it, but all the meringues are a little different. It's a different location of the perforation. Like Dan said, sometimes you can peel it from the undershirt of the drum, sometimes you can't. So a lot of times it's a game day decision. Tell me about um, odoria game day. So let's say, you know, two scenarios. One is <laughs> it's patients in pre-op and they got snot coming out of their ear. And let's say the second scenario is you don't really see anything in pre-op, but you go to the OR and there's drainage and there's some granulation tissue. How, how, does, how do you guys manage that? And also, thirdly, do you routinely look in with an otoscope before surgery, uh, before the patient goes to the OR? You know, I was just trying to think if I, the last time I canceled a case in pre-op because we were going to fix an eardrum and then the kid had some odory at the time and I really can't remember. So for better or worse, we kind of plow ahead. I am one of those believers where I think some of our chronic recurrent otorrhea kids have biofilm disease and cleaning them out at the time of tympanoplasty is probably a good idea. If anything, rather than doing something minimalistic like a butterfly graft, if the kid's draining and the ear looks fairly hot, We'll turn a tympanomatal flap, clean everything out as good as we can. Up until recently, I was also a big fan of putting in some otiprio into the middle ear space when we do that. And that's that long-acting quinolone. It's in a hydrogel. You squirt it in at a liquid, and then when it hits a 37-degree environment, it kind of gelatinizes, and then it stays in there for about three to four weeks. So in the early healing period, you're giving the ear a fighting chance to stay clear of an acute infection, give that graft a chance to take. Unfortunately, they're going to stop marketing that in the U.S. because they didn't have a great demand for it. Does that have steroid in it too? No. So no steroid component in that one. Yeah, I, I have a similar approach. I, I can't think of the last time I canceled a case because of otorrhea. Now, I was intraoperative. I wish I would have canceled the case. <laughs> it's a total disaster. But, you know, I... And, 
I think one really good hint for, um, you know, newer surgeons, and I just, you know, been in practice a long time, just you keep learning things as you go. But, you know, if a child has any history of otorrhea, just tell them to start drops one week before surgery. I usually tell them to start Cipridex or some some drop with a fluoroquinolone and a steroid. Um, and I think that can really help um, prevent some of this. You know, sometimes I'll forget to tell them or they'll forget to start it, um, but I'll proceed. And there was a good study at a house years ago when they looked at patients that had a dry perforation or a draining perforation at the time of surgery and the healing results were, were really about the same. Um, it just makes surgery more challenging. Um, the other thing too is sometimes you get such bad meningitis that it's hard to know where do you stop rimming the perforation. And so it does make more challenging, but I, I, we typically push forward. And I think Dan's got a good point. A lot of these kids just have biofilms and they're going to drain they're going to cancel them and they come back three months later and they're draining again, right? Any tips on, because uh, when the ear is inflamed, it's going to bleed a little bit more. Um, any tips on uh, hemostasis? Well, I think with the endoscope, you know, I've learned to use 1 to 1,000 epinephrine a lot more often. I didn't really use that much and I use it with the microscope now too. But if you take, um, you could do gel foam with 1 to 1,000 epinephrine or you can use little quarter inch patties. Um, I mean, it'll stop bleeding very quickly within less than a minute, you know, and if you get a lot of bleeding, just put some down there, wait a little bit, and then take that out, you could proceed. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's just patience, which is really hard for us, right? Because you got to stop a little bit more frequently, let it dry up, dissect a little bit more. It's really hard when I'm not the, not the primary surgeon, just watching that. <laughs> right. Okay. So any other tips or tricks about surgery itself? Because that's going to then kind of lead into some of the post-op care. I'm kind of curious what you guys think Walt, you do a ton of endoscopic stuff as well. We're shifting to our fellows will probably have done more endoscopic ear surgery than they have microscope. And part of me is being old fuddy-duddy otology, neurotology feels like, man, you got to learn your microscope skills. That's, that's a very different skill set. So these days, I actually give the fellows and the residents their preference. Like, all right, how do you want to do this one? Microscope, endoscope. Uh, most of them are actually gravitating towards an endoscope. They really like that. Uh, what are you guys noticing? That's the same same experience. Um, you know, our probably past three to four fellows, they, they probably have a little more endoscopic experience. You know, typically, I'll, a lot of these I'll start endoscopically, and then I try to tell them, hey, we need to make a decision early, right? If they have a secondary acquired cholesteatoma, you know, they've got a lot of granulation tissue, you've got a lot of bleeding. Sometimes it's just quicker and better for the patient just to go post-circular, use a microscope. You're not defeated if you convert over to microscope, right? It's just a tool. We're still ear surgeons. We're doing ear surgery. It doesn't matter if you're in a microscope or endoscope. You know, no one ever has to use an endoscope. They can have great results. I like to be able to use both. And, and especially the residents, you know, they really like the endoscopes. They get a lot of sinus surgery. And so they they really like to use endoscopes. And a lot of our fellows, you know, I'll, I'll say, well, you know, how are you going to do stapes? How are you going to do tympanoplasties? Most of them are using endoscopes for those operations. So I do agree you're worried about losing some microscopic skills. You know, if a case is going to take 50% longer to use an endoscope, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me for a small post-recon incision. One thing I'll mention about just an operative point is every time you do a tympanoplasty, make sure to look under the remnant tympanic membrane. I think one of the most common cause of failure is actually even behind some cholesteatoma, like a secondary acquired cholesteatoma. A very common place would be under the manubrium. So always look there. I had a case recently had a residual perforation. I, I knew they had a secondary acquired cholesterol. I thought I removed it all, and I bet I left a little bit behind, and it's just not going to heal well. And then obviously, you left a cholesterol behind. So I think it's a good pearl to always lift that remnant drum, make sure you don't see that shiny appearance of epithelium, because this probably happens more commonly than we think, especially in these patients with these draining ears. Do you use a, a 30 for that, or does it matter? I think it's, a lot of times you hit a zero degree, but I guess if you, if you know, if it's a small perforation, you don't have a nice temperamental flap, you could use a 30 to help out. Tim Gopi, I got a question for you. Yeah. I, one of my frustrating things after a pretty straightforward tympanoplasty is every once in a while you get this kid who still has a mild conductive hearing loss. Drum looks great. Middle ear space looks nicely aerated. And I just can't get their, their air bone gap closed. And I've scanned a bunch of those kids saying, where, where did I leave something? Or where are their adhesions? And the scan looks really benign. What do you guys think is going on there? 
I wonder if there's maybe some sort of scarring between the ossicles, maybe just because of manipulation. There probably are some adhesions that we just don't see in a scan that can be thin and strandy. And maybe the way that eardrum heals doesn't vibrate as well, too. I mean, those are the things. And I've had those kids. And it's just like, God. And then usually I'll be like, oh, dang, I'm going to have to send them to Dr. Walter Coots now for another opinion to see, do we need to do anything or can we watch it? Like, what are we going to do? But it's super frustrating. And then I've had the other kids where, oh, darn, you know, there's a little hole still left, but the hearing is good. But that's a good result, right? You know, anyways, to the question that you asked, it's probably, I think, probably just from manipulation scarring, whether it's the ossicles, because, you know, we check the ossicles and you're still, you know, tucking a graft underneath and, you know, you're still doing stuff. It's going to move a little bit to could be some straining of adhesions that we don't see. And just even the way the drum vibrates uh, now, it, you know, may not be vibrating the same way. I don't know. What do you think, Walter? Yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons. And, you know, I we recently published some tympanoplasty results. And I'm like, man, but, you know, our, our mean inner bone gap was like 10 or 12. I was like, what? What is going on? But if you look at the literature, that's about where your mean bo- air bone gaps, even just simple medial graft tympanoplasties. You know, we always think, well, we should get total air bone gap closure. But that doesn't always happen. And I was really surprised when I, you know, I think there's something going on with the technique. But I looked at the literature. There's still going to be an air bone gap in, in most kids. And it, it's bothersome. Now, when it gets 15, 20, then you're really like, oh, well, I'm, you're worried about, you know, what is really going on. And I think it could be many, many different things. It could have, you know, some temporosclerosis that's causing some vesicular chain, you know, not immobility, but maybe some impaired mo- movement. You're right. It's, I mean, it's it's amazing we get the results to do with replacing a tympanum membrane, using all this cartilage, all these sort of things. So it's probably multifactorial. You know, and, and sometimes the parents really focus on that, right? The, you can see on the graph, wait a second, the hearing in the operated ear is worse than the, the good ear. I'm like, well, the operated ear is not a normal, natural ear, right? We have to repair it. And so... You know, if it's a 10 decibel air bone gap, it's not going to probably affect the child. And that's in reality a good result. But it's, odontology is humbling. That's for sure. So in terms of post-op, do you drops a couple weeks later? For how long? If the kid doesn't do drops, does that change your management? And do you have to suck the packing out week three? I, I usually have them start drops, you know, I don't know, 10, 14 days after surgery. One trick, if uh, the drops bother the kid, you can, parent can put it in their pocket for 10, 15 minutes. I think warming it up a little bit can help. It's pretty rare that I think drops actually burn, but I do. We, we do have patients that describe that sometimes. Yeah. And in reality, with the young kids, I just put them on drops for a long time because I do like suctioning out the packing. But there comes a point where it is just not good for anybody to keep going after after the packing. And you know, a lot of times there'll be a little packing interiorly that you just can't remove on anybody. And I just continue drops for a couple more weeks. It usually takes care of it. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty familiar. We uh, I'll see my kids back somewhere around three weeks post op from a typical tympanoplasty and then won't start drops until I see them and then cleaning out the gel foam, whatever is convenient and comes really easily enough so I can get a peek of at least part of the drum to see how it's healing up. And then they come back probably another month after that. And that's when we'll do a a more formal clean out if there's anything residual as well as a early hearing test to see where they're heading. When do you usually get another audiogram after surgery? So it's typically at the second post-op visit, I'll get one. Uh, and I'll give the parents the caveat. I said, listen, this I just want to know where they're heading and see if we're in a good place early on, but it'll still get better for another few more months. Uh, so that's typically three weeks from the first visit and then four weeks after that one. So around seven, eight weeks, pretty typical. I do kind of a three-week and then I'll check the hearing of three months after surgery. Now, if there's some concern with healing, I'll see him again at, at four weeks after that that initial three week visit. But a lot of times, if the if thing looks like it's going well, I'll see him about three weeks. I've already started my drops, and then I'll just see him back in three months with an audiogram. How long do y'all do dry ear precautions for? About four to six weeks. And four weeks. How about sports and weightlifting and all those kind of things? I was so conservative. I'd be like two months. But like. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I was so conservative with water and like heavy lifting and sports. I'm like, these are not our school based patients. This is okay. Like, this is healing, but I would, I would just be super conservative um, about it. Oh, man. And your patients don't revolt on you? <laughs> they probably do. They just don't tell me. <laughs> well, especially that thin and sickle plastic, right? Then you, I did have one patient that, um, you know, obviously football's big in Texas and, Played, I think it was actually two or three months after surgery and they dislodged your prosthesis, but you're not going to tell them not to play football for two or three months. That's one of those unfortunate <laughs> occurrences. 
for any of our craniofacial kids, any nuances or double checks, belt and suspender type things that you do for the perforation that you're repairing in the child with Down syndrome or the cleft palate history that, you know, you're doing it, they have the hearing loss or it's otorrhea. I do think some of our kids with pretty severe clefts and skull base malformations, they're just always going to need a tube or some type of ventilation drainage place. But if they've got a subtotal perforation and a near maximal conductive hearing loss, so you got to do something. Sometimes I'll graft those drums and I'll probably use tragus for that. But then also put in, I did my ear fellowship with Herb Silverstein and he put in these subannular tubes that actually go underneath. And if you've got the drum already lifted up to do your tympanoplasty, it's actually a pretty easy thing to slide one under there. You drill a little, almost like a little trough where you're going to recess the tube just a little bit under the annulus area and then lay the drum down on top of that. So you give them much more of an intact drum, hopefully improve their hearing, but still leave them with a tube. Never been happy putting a tube through a grafted area of the drum. That just seems to come back with these huge holes for me. Uh, so this was one way to kind of get around that. I've thought about doing subannular tubes. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what I'll do on some of these really tough ears, I think you need a chronic tube is all I'll just punch a hole through the cartilage, use like a five um, suction, sort of push that down through the cartilage and take a small, like a 5910B blade and, and make that hole. And then I'll put a T-tube through that. And those patients tend to do really well. Um, I've had a number of patients who've had that tube in for years. I think one of the, the tubes are going to stay in, they can get blocked, but it'd be simple enough. I think you go to the OR, pull it out, put a new one back in. I don't, I don't recall one being blocked, but that's certainly going to happen one of these days. But, but you're right, you're, you're, you're graphing a drum and you're sort of putting a hole in the drum with a tube. But these are you know, somebody you just know has poor usage tube dysfunction. Do those tubes eventually fall out on their own or do they stay in forever? Well, I haven't been in practice forever, but they, uh, most of them seem to stay in. Have the subannular tubes, they, same thing, same, they'll stay in, damn, but they get, they get blocked and things, is what I've heard. Yeah, you do have to do a little bit of maintenance to keep them open, but I haven't had one fall out. If we've ever wanted to, we had to pull it out. And then quickly, in terms of hearing rehab options for the, the child that we didn't repair or the child that um, had the same or worse hearing outcome after surgery, audiology visit, hearing aid, preferential seating, tell me, FM systems. I think all those, you know, you definitely want to document things and talk to parents about preferential seating. You know, let's say they have a unilateral mild moderate hearing loss. If they're, you know, kids in Texas Medicaid, they're not going to be able to get a hearing aid and it may not be worth that much money just to buy a hearing aid. But, you know, an FM system can really solve those issues in school, at least, and help learning. Um, you know, one thing, if you don't fix a perforation, most kids can tolerate a hearing aid, but there's a chance the moisture retention that they're going to get chronic otorrhea. But, you know, I, I leave that to the parents. If they have bilateral, moderate, severe hearing loss, those kids really probably should encourage to wear hearing aids. You know, also can't forget the bone anchored hearing devices. You know, the new transcutaneous devices, we've had really good success. I've, I've converted a number of patients from the percutaneous to the new transcutaneous, and they really like the sound quality better, probably gives a little better high-frequency hearing. And now they don't have this post to gather scalp, they just put on a magnet and, and use it with their phone and everything else. So that's another option that can be considered. But you don't want to forget about the hearing component, obviously. And if, you know, if a kid has, or a patient has bilateral cholesteatoma, terrible hearing, a lot of times the first surgery, I'll, I'll just put in a percutaneous bone anchored hearing aid because they're going to, they may have hearing problems for two or three years by the time you operate in one ear, do a second yes. look. If you do second looks, do the other second look and you may not get a good hearing result. So I think putting a bone anchored hearing aid as soon as you can, will at least give them, you're going to solve the hearing issue until you get this all fixed. So that's something to think about. Yeah, I agree, Walt. And the percutaneous ones are so reversible. Right? It's such a benign intervention that you try to talk them into. It's it's a hard sell sometimes to tell people you're going to have this little post sticking out through your skin, though. Have to get them acclimated to that. For my adult patient kids, you just if they don't like it, they don't need it anymore, just unscrew it in five seconds. And, and I will mention one thing. If you're going to do the transcutaneous, you know, you got to think about it. You need to do a diffusion weight MRI in the future. So typically, if somebody has chronic otitis media, unless I just know that you're is safe and very unlikely to have a residual cholesterotoma, I'll just do a percutaneous. That's something to think about because you get so, even though it may be MRI compatible, you're going to get so much scatter with that um, Baja device that it's not going to allow you to do a diffusion weighted MRI to look for residual cholesterotoma. So as we wrap up, do you guys have any final pearls or maybe something that you do differently now um, than you did 10 years ago? So I think 
10 years ago, I wasn't doing a ton of endoscopic ear surgery. And I think that is, uh, I hate to say game changer, but I, I do think there's some real impact that it's had, probably more so in cholesteatoma disease, just the enhanced visualization. I think we're getting better at eradicating disease that way. And then in line with that, with us doing more transcanal endoscopic approaches, I definitely am shifting towards a little bit more cartilage than I did 10 years ago. And just circling back to one of the points we talked about, sometimes you get those really thick cartilages and you hate to put that much mass underneath your eardrum or in your eardrum. And the cartilage trimmer is something I'm using more. It's to really shave it down and make it a thin piece of cartilage. I think still conveys the structural support that you want without imparting such a big mass on the eardrum. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I, I started using endoscopes in 2014. And like I said, that's a, just a, it's a, gives you another, you know, way to deal with ear disease. And, you know, if somebody's cholesteatomas in the sinus tympani, you just can't see with a microscope. And if you're a skilled endoscopic surgeon, you can put a 30 degree scope, you know what to look for, you know how to prevent all the fogging, you know about hemostasis, you know the right instrument. And there's been a number of times even where it may be a microscopic approach, I'll pull out an endoscope. And I think before, and I was more of an endos- did a lot more endoscopic surgery, it would have been a real challenge. But now if you use the endoscope frequently, it's not a big deal and it can really enhance surgery. So I, I do agree that is something that has certainly changed in my practice. I started, I think, as you might've mentioned, Dan, you know, I think as you get more and more experience, you get more humble. And there's definitely early in my career, I'm like, oh, we could fix that. This is going to be great. And now I think it's more a lot of, you know, let's, let's watch this perforation. You know, you sort of know where you may get burned because you've been there before. And that's just part of the just part of you know your experience as a surgeon, and everybody has to go through a little bit about a little bit of that. But I, I think that's something that you know I rarely regretted being lower conservative initially. Yeah, absolutely. I think for the endoscope, I think Dan, you had asked this or mentioned this earlier with the fellows, especially on the PD side. I mean, that's what we're used to, right? Endoscopes in the sinuses, endoscopes in the airway. So an endoscope in the ear is something probably. What, if you're doing PD, you're probably going to gravitate to more. And then in terms of, you know, being conservative with a perf and a kid, I've never been burned being conservative with a perf and a kid. But anyways, thank you guys so much. Um, I learned a ton. If our listeners have any questions or want to learn more about you guys, are either of you on any social media? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do add Twitter, so EarDoc1, and then um, Instagram, which I don't do as much as Walter Coots MD. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you're so hip and fresh. For an old guy, it's shocking. I don't have TikTok. My kids want me to get TikTok. No TikTok here. All right. Well, uh, Dan, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, reach out to us at Backtable and we'll try to pass the message along. Um, for our listeners for stopping by, thank you for joining us. If you have any comments, ideas, or ever want to come on the show, please reach out to us. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Louie Thanks again for listening and see you next week.